0: I think Paul Dacre is, without doubt, the greatest tabloid editor of our era. I think our
1: country is, you know, if our politics is in a mess, I think he has to take some share of responsibility for that.
2: You know, quite often you would get really red-faced and really appalling and and everyone was like, cowering or hiding behind the pillars. He, he
1: could be blamed for lowering the tone of debate in our politics, making it a lot more aggressive,
0: a lot less cerebral there is no better mass-market editor than Paul Dacre. I'm Michael
3: Crick. Welcome to the very first edition of the Mugshots podcast. In this series, I'll be profiling many of the world's movers and shakers, exploring their backgrounds, their beliefs, their paradoxes, how they got where they are today and what makes them tick. And remember... These people are public figures with power over our lives. In a free country, a democracy, journalists like me don't just have the right to explore who such people are, we have a duty to do so. And my policy is not to try and interview the subject themselves, but to talk to people around them who know them well. Few figures are more controversial than my first subject, Paul Dacre, soon perhaps to be Lord Dacre. For more than 30 years now, with one short break, Dacre has run what's now the most popular newspaper in Britain, the Daily Mail. And from Prime Ministers downwards, many people live in fear of what Dacre thinks and what his papers, The Mail and now The Mail on Sunday too, will write about them. What makes Dacre especially interesting is that he's a mass of contradictions. Paul Michael Dacre was born on the 14th of November, 1948. A familiar date to you, perhaps. For coincidentally, that was also the day that one Elizabeth Windsor gave birth to our king, Charles III. Dacre's mother, Joan, wasn't a princess, of course, but a schoolteacher, while his father, Peter, was a newspaper journalist who occasionally wrote song lyrics such as That's What Life Is All About. Sung by Bing Crosby.
4: My life is like an open book. And as I glance back through the pages, Dacus Sr., Peter, I he came down from the north and, and ended up as a star feature writer on the Sunday Express. In the days when the Sunday Express was huge, it was, you know, it sold five million a week every Sunday. Adrian Addison wrote the book Mailmen, the unauthorised story of the Daily Mail. He lived at the end of the Piccadilly Line in the suburbs of London, North London, in Arnos Grove, which, I mean, less so now, more so then, was very much like a a Terry and June, like one foot in the grave kind of suburb, very middle class, you know, privet fence and all that. So Deger grew up there, and he's the oldest of five boys. And the family moved for a few years to the US. His dad was the US editor, I believe, covering showbiz. He was the first journalist to interview Elvis, his dad, Deger Sr. Uh, And, you know, the best possible time to be a showbiz reporter, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and on through to Led Zeppelin and Queen and all that. So Sunday newspapers and journalism was just part of the family DNA, you know. And the, the Sunday Express was was edited by John Gina, uh who I think, it, and a lot of people who knew Dacre over many years, think Duna was this kind of model, The JJ was a model for how he modelled himself later. John juner was, was very much a presence every Sunday in the Dacre household, he would scroll all over his dad's copy that he had in his briefcase when he came home on a Saturday. And Dacre was just addicted to all this. He was just hooked on the whole journalism thing. Paul Dacre edited the school newspaper
3: and got work on The Express during the holidays, then read English at Leeds University. It was the late 60s, the era of student protest, and Dacre, by his own account, was part of that left-wing revolt. He went on Vietnam marches and chanted Ho 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 Chi Minh in support of the communist tyrant leader of North Vietnam. And now he edited the university newspaper too, while the president of the Students' Union at Leeds was the future Labour Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw. Now, Jack, I have in my hand here a copy of a magazine called the British Journalism Review, and it's got a rare interview with Paul Dacre done 20 years ago. And he says of that period that he leaned towards Labour. Yeah, like all students, he's quoted as saying, if you don't have a left wing period when you go to university, you should be shot, he says. I was left wing and I don't regret it one bit. Is that how you remember Dacre in those days?
5: Uh, i i don't ever remember having a specific conversation with paul about whether he or or i was going to vote um labour at the following general election this was in the period of 67 uh, 68 with the doldrums of the uh, harold Wilson's second administration um and uh, even those who were in the labour members of the labour party as was i tended to uh, to keep quiet about it. But I mean, if if that was what he's saying, I've no reason whatever to doubt that indeed was the case. Um, I saw him as a very professional student journalist. um, And uh, it was frankly a great relief to deal with somebody that professional that early. Um, And what Paul was known for was being a newspaper uh, man. Uh, His father was senior when print newspapers really mattered uh, and the Sunday Express had a really very large circulation. So we we knew that it it was in his blood and that showed in his journalism and the student body benefited from the fact we had a really well-produced weekly newspaper.
3: Like his father before him, Dacre joined the Daily Express in Manchester spent several years in Belfast at the height of the Troubles, then became an express reporter in a plum location, New York City, working under the legendary Brian Vine. Adrian Addison again.
4: There was a bar called Costello's where all of the the, the, the mail and the express and the, the sun and the, the mirror, all these hacks would like hang around this one bar. It sounded like my kind of place, but it wasn't Dacre's kind of place. He would sit in the corner and basically be ostracised by them all. And Brian, Brian would call him my fucking tea boy. Apparently, even on a hot day, he would, he would turn up in a pinstripe suit. So he, in, in many ways, he wasn't like the typical
3: clichéd newspaper man, hard-drinking, uh, womanising, uh, apart from in his use of language, <laughs>
4: But even then, in his use of language, there was a change came later. I think it was a conscious move that he tried to make him in, himself into what he'd seen from other people. He was rated as, a, as an interviewer and a, a features kind of fluff guy, but his contemporaries didn't rate him as a um, news hound, you know, as a news getter, as a hard news kind of hack. It was in New York,
3: Dacre later explained, that his politics changed radically. From the US, Britain seemed ossified and sclerotic, he said, while Americans were clearly much better off. Hence his conversion to free-market Thatcherism. Yet surprisingly, both at The Express and later The Mail, Dacre's article showed remarkably little flair. Later in life, on Desert Island Discs, he said... He knew then he'd
4: never be a great writer. I dug out all of his cuttings. I read most of the stuff he did for The Express and I read all of the stuff he did for The Daily Mail. It wasn't memorable, you know. He seemed to be really... You could feel the sinews in him trying to get that paragraph right, you know. You could see him just sitting there hour after hour trying to get it right, whereas his predecessor, as editor, Sir David English, it just flowed out of him. He was a, a natural... David English, the legendary editor
3: in those days of the Daily Mail, clearly saw promise in Dacre and in 1980 persuaded him to leave the Express to become mail bureau chief in New York, then news editor back in London. Dacre climbed the mail ladder and eventually succeeded English in 1992. Tim Walker, a former mail reporter who recently featured Dacre in a play he staged in London about Brexit, Disagrees with Dacre's politics, but admits he was very good at his job. Well, I, I hope in in
1: the play, bloody difficult women, I got this across. He was a very good editor. He knew what a good headline was. He was technically very accomplished. Um, I think he was wary of people like me. And I remember he once came up to me and he said, and I was at the time editing Nigel Dempster's column while he was away.
3: The gossip column.
1: That's right. And he said, and Dempster was a big star in those days. And he said to me, you're a good column, very good column, well done. And then he kept reading it. And he said, well, I said, what you're trying to do is to disguise with fine writing the fact you've got nothing whatsoever to say. And, <laughs> and he kind of regarded really good writing, which I like to think I, I'd had done that day, as
3: almost like witchcraft. Paul Dacre also had a genius for understanding the male's middle-class, Middle England audience and what they wanted. A mix, he said, of family values, self-reliance and aspiration. My job is to represent millions of people who don't have a voice, he once said. I'm joined now by David Yelland, who used to be the editor of The Sun in this country, and therefore
0: in rivalry with Paul Dacre. How do you rate Paul Dacre? I think Paul Dacre is, without doubt, the greatest tabloid editor of our era. He understood what the Daily Mail needed to be and created it. And he's one of those editors who created a paper in his own image and sustained it over time. Every now and again, you get editors like that. But Paul Dacre's great achievement is that he created the modern Daily Mail uh, and sustained it through time. And the brilliance with, with Paul is that he knew and knows precisely what the Daily Mail reader wants, and what his proprietor wants, and has created a paper that has been commercially incredibly successful, um, including the launch of a a Sunday edition, the Mail on Sunday, and has sustained that over a long period of time. And he understands the time in which we live, and the country in which we live, and created the paper for that country, uh, and the commercial success of it speaks for itself. So do you think that then the mail represented the country as a whole? I think the mail represents something about the British psyche. Um, when I was editing, I once had a conversation with with Tony Blair about the Daily Mail, and he said something which I often repeat, which I've never forgotten. And he said, the thing about the British is they're all a bit daily mail just before they have their breakfast. And what he meant by that was Daily Mail is an instrument of anger. It reflects anger and actually creates anger as well. But there's a part of the British psyche that is angry and what I think Tony Blair was saying is that we're all a bit like that at some point during the day. We might we, we might be better after our breakfast and, and <laughs> be more compassionate and get on. But Paul Dacre isn't. He's like that all the time.
3: Imagine the joy of putting together ninety-six pages from nothing, Dacre once declared. Yet amid the joy and his undoubted charm, he could often explode with astonishing fury. He quickly became a legendary figure in Fleet Street. Tales appeared in private eye of his pugnacity, aggression and use of a certain swear word. Pardon my
4: language, but his favourite word was cunt. Adrian Addison. So every reporter would have received a cunting, as they called it, off Paul Dacre. Some people like, were, were even... You know, it was a competition to see who would get called a cunt the most off Paul Dacre... Like it was an ambition to get a double cunting. It was called where you get he calls you a cunt twice in the in one sentence.
3: It seems very unexpected for the respectable middle class man from suburbia who was passionate about family values. Gone was the quiet, shy man of his New York days. Sue Douglas worked side by side with Dacre
2: in the late eighties. I don't know whether he was as extreme and shouty and swearing before maybe he always was but certainly it reached a crescendo when I was there but he never he honestly never did it to me
3: what was he like when he was shouty and physically what was it like
2: oh uh, you know quite often he would get really red-faced and really appalling and and everyone was like, cowering or hiring hiding behind the pillars um but sometimes it was just it was so frequent that people just thought there he goes again
3: It made them frightened of him and it presumably affected their work. What, in a positive way
2: or a negative way? I think there's an element of all, and this is true, certainly in my career, newsrooms being, particularly newsrooms, being very macho and aggressive. Well, you know, if you start shouting when you're trying to get someone to tell you something, that ain't going to work, is it? Maybe it does in the Wolf of Wall Street. As a reporter... I I didn't think that he had those, um, it's not human skills, that sounds so deprecatory and arrogant of me, but um, he was much more about packaging things and he was thinking all the time of what's the headline? What is this? Which of course is important, but he wasn't thinking of breaking the mold, taking the risk, having a different opinion. And yet maybe he was flirting with that, I don't know.
3: As editor of the Mail, Dacre's personal views could have a big impact among millions of readers. And by the start of the 90s, he'd become one of the early skeptics about Britain's membership of the European Union.
4: I mean, it's 30 years now that Dacre's been editor. Well, you know, he's kind of left and came back. I mean, his first prime minister was Major. He didn't like John Major, he didn't rate him. He thought he's a weak. Grey man, which is arguably true. He he didn't trust Blair. He thought Blair was a chameleon who 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 would just agree with whoever he, he would take the views of whoever he'd just been talking to and didn't really sit anywhere. Uh and he didn't like Sherry Blair. Apparently he fell out with Sherry Blair because she breastfed their child in the in a, in the Daily Mail office when they, they were around for one of their love-ins, you know. And he was suspicious of Blair, but he he, he liked, yeah, he really did like Gordon Brown. It was a strange love affair. Brown, of course, as Chancellor, had blocked Blair from taking
3: Britain into the single currency, the euro. Brown was touched by the mantle of greatness, Dacre once said. He was compassionate, an original thinker, in his view, a man of enormous willpower and courage. Tim Walker again. I think they were very similar people. I I think
1: both of them, I don't know, a little bit clumsy, a little bit awkward. Uh, I think they were both quite dark souls in a way, not massively sociable. Um, Both workaholics, both very driven. And of course, he went to the the funeral of Gordon's baby, baby Jennifer, when, when she died. And I think there was a very strong bond between them. I can see how, you know, Dacre wouldn't like David Cameron, he was obviously a bit of a spiv. He was everything that Dacre wasn't, but
3: I think Dacre liked serious people. Paul Dacre once admitted that the old male was slightly racist, but that changed. He said after the notorious murder of black teenager Stephen Lawrence by a white racist thugs in 1993 which prompted Dacre to print one of the most courageous and risky headlines of modern times. It was just one word, murderers, over photos of the five men whom police suspected of killing Lawrence. But three had been acquitted only the year before, and two had their cases dropped. If we are wrong, let them sue us, the mail challenged. Dacre called it his greatest campaign.
5: Paul put off right on the front page, words to effect, we named the guilty men, and invited them to sue if if they objected to this description. Um, I was in opposition at the time, and the Lawrence family had been in touch with me to ask me uh, to promise to have uh, a public inquiry. I, I said to them, look, I can't make, make a direct promise on this. I need to see what the Home Office have got to say about it. But I promise you, I will look into this very, very carefully as soon as I become Home Secretary, if that is the case. Anyway, I did become Home Secretary, and I looked into it.
3: Do you think that played a role in you bringing
5: about the personal inquiry and justice? Yes, in this sense. I'd like to think that even in the absence of uh, that Daily Mail story and headline, I would have set up the inquiry anyway. I'm pretty certain I would have done. But what Paul's magnification of, of the allegation did was to... Broaden the, the public understanding of the need for this inquiry. And it actually made my job in government much easier. Because, Although I was determined to do, to do it, uh, I had to get on board some cabinet colleagues. You know, in retrospect, it seems the most obvious thing uh, of all uh, to do, which is to set up a, a, a public inquiry into police failings in this case. In prospect, it was far from easy. There were people in the police, Right to the top, we were extremely nervous about having a public inquiry. But Paul's story and headline and continuing commitment to it did make a significant difference, say, to the public climate in which I was operating and the political climate as well.
3: Amazingly, Dacre's conversion to the cause of justice for the teenager had come about after he happened to employ Stephen Lawrence's father,
4: Neville, Uh, And it turned out that Stephen Lawrence's dad had been a plasterer in uh, Dacre's home. He's his Lincoln home. It was getting refurbished and and one of the guys there was Stephen Lawrence's dad. And he got murdered and it was just seen as another of one of many dodgy gangland kind of murders in South London, which it wasn't. But it was kind of, it was dismissed as such. And it was this that seems to be what got, got it on Dacre's radar. And the more he read about it, the more outraged he became because this kid was aspirational in the, in, in the Daily Mail kind of mode. You know, he wanted to be an architect. He was going. He was studying. He was just brutally cut down by a gang of thugs, basically. And to be fair to Dick, he had the balls to. I mean, right. Very few people would act as judge and jury on a murder case on the front page of a newspaper. And the, the idea being, like, if he accused them of being murderers, they'd have to sue. And then they could, they could air... It, it, it would be a way of, of almost conducting a murder case were they to do that, which, of course, they, they didn't.
3: And it could have been incredibly costly for the paper as well, couldn't it?
4: Yeah, I think... Well, it could have. It could have been a disaster. I mean, it could have cost him his job. So he was breaking a lot of rules, you know. But he went for it. He did it. And, I mean, for me... It was a hell of a thing to do.
3: (laughs) Two of the thugs were convicted of murder, and later, at a grand dinner to mark 25 years of Dacre's editorship, Stephen Lawrence's mother Doreen, who'd become a baroness, was given pride of place by his side on the top table. That quarter century had seen Dacre's newspaper become a key part of the momentum against the EU, which in 2016 finally prompted David Cameron to call the referendum on Britain's membership, though Cameron urged people to vote to stay. Three months before the vote, Dacre discovered that Cameron had also urged the proprietor of the Mail, Jonathan Rothermere, to sack him. Cameron's clumsy move only stiffened his resolve to back Brexit. Tim Walker again. David Cameron, you
1: know, socially inept, arrogant man that he was, had phoned up Lord Rothermere and told him to sack Paul Dacre because he took the view that Dacre wasn't being as supportive as he should be. And obviously, you know, if somebody tries to get you sacked, you do turn against them. But all I would say was, I like to think, you know, whatever, however annoyed and vindictive I may get about something, I'd never do something that would damage the country. And clearly, I would argue, uh, Brexit has
3: damaged our country. Given the vote was just 52 to 48, Dacre's mail, with a circulation of almost two million, may have made the difference. But then three High Court judges decided that Parliament must give its consent first uh, before the government could trigger Article 50, the mechanism to leave the EU. Brexiteers were outraged and so, almost 20 years after his murderer's front page, Dacre approved another male headline which was bound to upset the legal establishment. Beneath mugshots of the three senior judges wearing their wigs, They were condemned by the Mail as enemies of the people. Here's the former Sun editor, David Yelland again. And what's been his effect on British politics, do you think?
0: Uh, Almost wholly negative Uh, (laughs) and and destructive, uh, I'm afraid. The problem for the political class is that the Daily Mail is better at what it does than they are at what they do. The Daily Mail's prejudices and and brilliance at simplifying things has forced the politicians into doing the same thing. One way to look at it is this. I, I don't think, without a shadow of a doubt, there's ever a major decision made in this country, in politics and in business, actually. And I had some experience in this, where at some point around the table, somebody doesn't say, what will the Daily Mail make of this? And that's the problem. So every major... Decision whether it's on asylum or on uh, launching a major product or buying buying a a company or selling a company or doing something at some point, if it doesn't pass the Daily Mail test, it might either might not happen or might happen in a different way. And you know, the Daily Mail and Paul Dacre would would, will be delighted to hear that they'll think that 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 is a badge of success, and in some ways it is, but it results in conservative decision making because. The Daily Mail frightens people. It frightens politicians. It frightens people in sports, in uh, entertainment industry, and in business. They don't want to get the wrong side of Paul Dacre or the Daily Mail because he can make their life very, very difficult indeed. And, and that um, has meant uh, people behave differently. And it's changed people's behavior and forced the decision makers in the country to to be more populist and less compassionate in many areas of public life.
3: A great irony is that Paul Dacre doesn't seem to enjoy the spotlight himself. He gives very few interviews and is quick to object on many occasions when people write hostile things about him. That's
4: what Adrian Addison found with his independent history of the Mail. There was a flurry of angry letters. Came from the Daily, from the Associated Newspapers' legal department. Basically, it was a clever move because the power they had over a publisher like Atlantic Books was over serial rights because the Associate Associated Newspapers titles. They are one of the few who still serialize books. You know, as you know, you know, it, it, you can it can get a boost in your sales if you if you're in the mail or one of the magazines or the mail on Sunday or whatever.
3: Were they frightened?
4: I would be frightened if I was the CEO of Atlantic Books. I think it was a perfectly normal reaction. You'd think, like, I'm going to publish this one book and the next two dozen aren't going to get serialised. Tim Walker tells a very similar tale about his play Bloody Difficult Women,
3: staged last year.
1: Suddenly, a few weeks before we opened, we started getting letters from the Daily Mail's legal department um, with Paul Dacre as the client, as the lawyer made it clear in the letters, Saying that he wanted to have the right to read the script before we put the play on. <laughs> That's
5: extraordinary. It's quite extraordinary. <laughs>
1: and I mean, when I was at the mail, largely because I was, you know, people like Paul Dacre trained me and other editors before him, you know, it's not dumb, as you as as you know, uh, to demand copy approval before publication or before broadcasting or whatever. And so, I, you know, we wrote back very politely and said, you know, do come along and see it. You'll be more than welcome. But no, we're not going to let you, you see it any more than we would expect you to show us a copy of the review before you, you print it. He didn't take the hint. This, this letter came back in various shapes or forms, initially directed to Rachel Tackley, the boss of the Riverside Studios, then to Denise Sylvie, the producer. And it kept coming back in various forms, and it was very awkward, really. And I, you know, obviously he could have been a vexatious litigant; he could have begun some kind of proceedings. I talked to um, to lawyers uh, who, who you know, they went through it in great care, and so we kind of, we kind of got away with it.
3: In 2018, Lord Rothermere suddenly replaced Dacre as editor of the Mail with Geordie Gregg, under whose leadership the paper became less right-wing and less Eurosceptic. Dacre officially remained overall editor-in-chief, but then attacked his successor's record amazingly in a stinging letter to the Financial Times. Dacre accused Gregg of being economic with the truth. He claims 265 advertisers came back to the Mail in his year as editor. Dacre wrote, in fact, far more than that number left during the same period. In response, the Mail Group issued a statement backing Greg and saying the advertising gains more than offset the losses. And yet, after only three years, Greg was sacked. Dacre returned and his strident politics returned to the Mail as the paper loyally defended Boris Johnson during Partygate and his final months in Number 10. Johnson, in turn, was keen to make Dacre the chair of the media regulator Ofcom. For Tim Walker, Dacre's cosy relationship with Boris Johnson has severely damaged his long-term reputation. I mean at that time and i'm I'm talking now i stress all the time it's a bit like i feel a bit like
1: the butler in the film the remains of the day i always stress (laughs) at the time it all seemed perfectly rational that you know to work for the daily mail And I would put him at that point up there with Ben Bradley, the famous editor of the Washington Post, who was there when they revealed the Watergate scandal, and Harry Evans, the great Sunday Times editor, who revealed the thalidomide scandal. I would put him up there with Harry Evans and Ben Bradley at that point, but I wouldn't now. Because both Bradley and Evans died as newspaper men. They did not die as somebody, people who, towards the end of their careers, were sort of desperately trying to ingratiate themselves to a government to take a a position in public life at Ofcom, uh, the broadcasting watchdog, which is what Johnson wanted Dacre to do. Um, they, They didn't go down the route of trying to cosy up to a government. And and I
3: mean... Well, well, Tim, you know, uh, Harry Evans uh, cozied up to the Blair government and he even got a knighthood out of it. Uh, yeah, but he never accepted a job <laughs> from them and he never wanted a job
1: from them. And I do think, you know, with Paul Dacre's money and so forth, he doesn't need to do it.
3: I think it's tarnished his reputation. We could yet see Lord Dacre... For Boris Johnson is thought to have nominated him for a peerage in his long-delayed resignation honours list. Even some friends, though, think Dacre would be foolish to become a
5: lord. Jack Straw. I mean, if I were in his position, I would think twice about taking a a peerage because then then he he is, as it were, is more in the public spotlight. And one of the reasons he's been successful, and it's a great paradox is, is the reason to which you've alluded, which is... He, he's, he's never turned, offered himself as a public figure. I mean, he's become a public figure because of, of his leadership of the newspapers, but he's resolutely refused to be interviewed, to offer commentary on what's in his newspapers. And he says quite reasonably, look, I run a newspaper. The newspaper can speak for itself. And I, it doesn't want his views directly to get in the
0: way of it. The thing about Paul Dacre is he's not very good at interviews. David Yelland again. He's not very good at filling in forms and he's not very good at turning up and being audited and tested and checked and all those things that you have to do for public office. That's why he's not chair of Ofcom and that's why at the moment he's not in the House of Lords because, you know, I mean, we don't know much about the Lords process. but We know a lot about the Ofcom process now and and for all of the mud the Daily Mail throws at those people who serve the public in civil service or at BBC or wherever, they are completely accountable. Their salaries and investments are completely public. Their expenses are public. Uh, their educations are public. Uh, their relationships are public, and they are. That's what public service is. Now, for Paul Dacre, who has you know a huge house in Kensington and an estate in Scotland and all kinds of other, he's made a great deal of money. If he's going to become a public servant of some kind, all that has to become public, and I think that was a problem for him. And I also think it was a problem for him to actually be asked questions by people he would regard as his lesser. So, you know, committee members at Ofcom, <laughs> you know, um, he's very grand and has got a lot grander over the years. And I don't think he would he was he was he was up for that. Um, on the Lords thing, there is proper scrutiny of these appointments. Uh, and I suspect that what's happened uh, at the moment, half will be the people who scrutinise public honours are not are not content that, with his appointment. And half will be, uh, I suspect, Paul Dacre probably calling uh, either Boris Johnson or whoever it is behind the scenes saying, look, now is not the right time. Because if you think about it, he would presumably take the Tory whip... That seemed to be what was going to happen. I mean, to have the man who runs the Daily Mail serve in the House of Lords and take the Tory whip just cannot be. He would have to surely leave his role. I don't see how how that could be. There are other honours. He could be knighted or that sort of thing. But to actually join the legislature, which is what being a peer is, would seem to me to be a step too far.
3: And Paul Dacre faces another threat to his chances of joining the Lords. Last October, Prince Harry, Elton John and several other privacy campaigners, including Baroness Doreen Lawrence, launched a legal action alleging that during Dacre's time, the Mail and Mail on Sunday had hacked people's phone messages, placed listening devices inside people's cars and homes and used other illegal methods to gain Personal information. The Mail dismisses the claims as preposterous smears, a pre planned and orchestrated attempt to drag the Mail titles into the phone hacking scandal concerning articles up to 30 years old. An initial court hearing is due in March. If the claims are proved, the case could be as damaging to Dacre and the Mail as the phone-hacking convictions were to Rupert Murdoch and his tabloids a decade ago. Paul Dacre is in danger of a tawdry end to a hugely influential career in which he was arguably the greatest and most powerful editor of his generation.
0: You know, if you want to know what the Brits think, look at the Daily Mail. If you want to know what kind of country we are, look at the Daily Mail. And the effects of the successful Daily Mail on the country has been very profound. At some point, hopefully after I left the Sun, I'd like to think, but anyway, at some point, the Daily Mail became the most important paper in the country. For many, many years, the Sun was the most important paper in the country. It was the most important paper for the political class, for influencing how people voted. And just it was where the British zeitgeist was. Um, so that that is an amazing achievement. And of course... You know, Paul Dacre's beaten Rupert Murdoch. I mean, he's, you know, so that that to fight off Rupert Murdoch in the newspaper business is quite an achievement. And they, they, they wouldn't have done it without Paul Dacre. I'm pretty confident of that.
3: Here's the final verdict
5: of Jack Straw. Paul is, is one of those people, yes, he likes leading opinion and... Causing con- controversy. But he knows very well if people stop buying his newspaper, and that includes these days clicking it online, then he's done. But he's run a very successful newspaper because he's in touch with a particular cross section of the British public. And if you like, one of the mistakes that the Labour Party made, uh, including me, f- for years and years and years, was not really understanding the nature of the readership of the Daily Mail. Because uh, we had, we done. For example, the Brexit vote might not have been lost in the way that it was, and we might not have lost as badly as we did through the previous decade, and uh, hopefully not this one. Um, I mean, if Paul Dacre did not exist, and uh, there was somebody really nice and cuddly running the mail, he'd be running a he or she would be running a similar newspaper. He may not be such a demon figure. So I, I just think it's absurd to to, to blame. The fact of the Daily Mail on one person, it's more complicated than that.
3: Former Mail reporter Tim Walker
1: again. Say I was writing his obituary now, however you played it, you'd have to have up there in the first few paragraphs Ofcom, his closeness to Boris Johnson, his closeness to the Tory government, his clear and overt wish to get a peerage. And I think all of that, to some extent, in my view, overshadows the fact that he, you know, he was a very good newspaper editor, very successful newspaper editor. And I think that's very sad. I mean, I've got nothing against him, him personally, and he was very kind and very decent to me when I worked for him. And it saddens me that I now think of him as somebody tarnished by his associations with politics. You know, he should have been above it all. You know, editors shouldn't get close to politicians in the way that he did. Uh, when really he should have kept very much to the business of being a fiercely independent
3: newspaper man. He's a man who's loved tweaking the noses of the establishment, yet now yearns to join them. By his own standards, journalistically, politically and business-wise, judged by the billions he's made for his bosses, Paul daker has been one of the most successful people of our age. Yet at the price of helping to make our political discourse more strident, more polarised, and less civil. My life is like an open book And as I glance back through the pages This is Michael Crick. Join me next time I for another edition of Mugshots. I often took Though I was never too courageous
1: life
0: Mugshots was written and produced by Michael Crick and Chet Gerbertson Additional research by Matilda Walters Audio production ride. by Robin Lieburn and Alex Reese. Music by nowhere. Jade Bailey Group editor for Podmasters is Andrew Harrison And Mugshots is a Podmasters that production
4: That's what life is
5: all about